Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father, who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And now from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then to 9 and 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to share with you nothing less than the key project in living the Christian life, as well as a couple of rather surprising examples of what it means in practice. The key project of how to live the Christian life with a couple of slightly surprising examples. It's from the first part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As we've been hearing, the letter called 1 Thessalonians was written to a very new Christian community in northern Greek city of Thessalonica. It had come into being when the Apostle Paul had gone there and proclaimed Christ. But due to violent opposition, he'd been forced to abandon them after only a month or so. He became very anxious about had they survived. But he finally received, as we heard last week, the good news 
that all was well. Despite everything, the fragile, brand-new Christian community was still flourishing and hanging in there. Now, in this letter, he's writing back to them, full of relief and thankfulness. And that's the subject of the first half of the letter and the first four sermons in this series. In the second half of the letter, Paul also takes the opportunity to instruct the Thessalonians further from what he had to say when he was with them, as well as to clear up a few questions that have arisen. And that's where we turn to today and in the coming weeks ahead. And that's where we find, spelled out for us, the key project of living the Christian life, as well as a couple of somewhat surprising examples of putting it into practice. First then, the key project of living the Christian life, and come with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live and please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. What was it Paul instructed his readers when he was with them for that too, long, that too brief a visit? We instructed you how to live in order to please God. We instructed you how to live in order to please God. That is the key project of living the Christian life, to live in order to please God. Actually, the Greek behind our New International Version translation, is, when it has, we instructed you how to live, is literally, we instructed you how to walk. We instructed you how to walk in order to please God. As in fact, you are walking. To walk is a metaphor, of course, to mean going along in life. How you walk in your life, your behaviour, the way you go about your life, what you do. I rather like it, actually how to walk in order to please God. Now, when you think about it, we're all walking in some sense. We're living our lives somehow, conducting our lives in certain ways, with certain values and behaviours, whether we're quite self-aware of that and whether good or bad. The question is, is there a purpose in your walk? Are you living for anything? Now, it's not, that's not a simple question, I know. We're quite complex and there are many different things we live for in different ways. But neither is the question so complex we can't ask the question, well, what is the most fundamental motivation in your life? What is the main thing you live for? What is your life project? And there'll be an answer to that of some kind. Perhaps you've not thought of the question quite in those terms. I live to please myself. I live to uh, please others. I live um, to avoid pain and trouble. I live uh, to experience what needs to be experienced. I, I live for my family. I live for achievement. There are all kinds of possible uh, answers you could, give, you could give to the question. Now, Paul instructed the Thessalonian converts to walk or to live with a very particular purpose in mind. We instructed you how to walk in order to please God. In order to please God. That was the purpose driving how they were out now to walk. In order to please God. 
Now, this wasn't just something he asked them to do. It marked Paul's own life as well. Back in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, we read Paul recounting what happened when he visited them the first time. How, as he put it, quote, I dared to tell them the gospel in the face of strong opposition. And then how his appeal that he'd made didn't spring from error or impure motives, nor was he trying to trick them. Why? Why he behaved this way despite opposition? The answer is in chapter 2, verse 4. Quote, We were not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Literally, we're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. That was Paul's driving motive in his apostolic ministry. And that's what he taught his readers to do also, to walk like that, to walk with that purpose, to please not people, but God who tests the heart. And that's what I'm calling this morning the key project of living the Christian life. Now, before I come into what I call some surprising examples of putting that walking to please God into practice, let's think a little further about this walking to please God. Let me raise three challenges or objections to that project of not trying to please others but please God to test the heart. My first challenge is this that God is invisible. Now, it's the very nature of God in his omnipresence and his power to be hidden. That's how he creates space for creatures like us. The problem is that God's invisibility means, A, out of sight, out of mind, and B, you don't get much immediate feedback from him. Whereas with other people, you're going to get, there they are, you can see them and hear them, and you'll usually get feedback whether or not you're going well or not with them. It's so much easier to go for what is tangible and immediate, not the invisible God who tests our hearts. And that's why in the reading from the Gospel of Matthew, we find our Lord himself warning, even performing acts of piety. You can get them wrong by aiming them in the wrong direction. And to others are not God. In Matthew 6, he warns about the practices, of Jewish piety practice of giving alms to the poor, of fasting and of praying. He warns against doing these acts of piety in order to be seen by others and regarded as pious by others. Jesus says, don't worry, it always works. You'll get your reward. Oh yeah, your prayer will be answered. They think, mm, he's, a nice, he's a pretty holy guy. Your prayer will work. Just you won't be getting any reward from your father who sees in secret. If you really want to please God, make sure that you're aiming for the one who sees in secret, not the ones who are tangible. And that's why to live in order to please God requires faith. It requires trust in the God who tests the heart, though he's not seen. That's the first challenge. 
The second is this. Two, we may find ourselves, frankly, not caring much about pleasing God anyway. Though it might sound strange to say it, that's what I was going to call the natural state of the human heart. Actually, it's not natural at all. Sin is not the way we were made to be. So it's the unnatural state of the human heart. But there is a turning in our hearts as we, as we wake up, as we grow. We're born into it. There's a turning that pulls ourselves to please ourselves or others and not the God who made us. And therefore we need to be turned around so if we truly want to live to please God. Truly. Now, as we heard in the last weeks, the Thessalonians were turned around when Paul came and spoke to them about the living and true God who had raised his son from the dead, Jesus, who will rescue us, he said, from the coming judgment. And, and they, they received the word of God, the word about God, rather, from Paul, uh, not as a human word, not a word from human being, but actually, as it really is, as a word from God, a word about God, but also from God. And they believed and they trans were turned around and transferred their loyalty to the risen Jesus as Lord of all, and to live and to serve a living and true God. That became their life's goal. And they had received God's call into their, in his kingdom and glory. They received the call of God before they lived to please him. But having received the call, they, they lived to please him. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.11 reminds them of his own ministry there. And he, as I quote, For you know how we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. They weren't told to live lives worthy of God so that he might call you into his kingdom and glory, if you do well enough. No, because he has called you, then you live lives worthy of God. Or another way, walk in order to please God. That's the second objection. We need to be turned. The third one is this. It's slightly more a theological objection, um, often heard in more Protestant circles. We may wish to please God, but we can't please God. So what's the point? See, it goes like this. God is a thrice holy one who dwells in inapproachable light, who is a consuming fire. How can an imperfect human being, no matter how hard they try, ever please the God of holiness and perfection. So, why try? And this is an objection you often find those who are from the more Protestant side, a bit anxious about reliance upon good works and a concern about that. You may find yourself being attracted to this objection. And there's a great deal of truth in it. It takes God's holiness and human sinfulness seriously, which is on the right track. But it's mistaken. It's mistaken. How can I be so sure? Well, read 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1 in its entirety. And what do you read? 
Quote, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live, walk, to please God, as, in fact, you are doing. As, in fact, you are living. Now, we urge you and ask you and the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. They were doing it. They're urged to do it more and more. It can be done. You can do it even better. How can it be done? How can this be true of you or me? How can we live to please God and actually achieve that purpose? Well, it's because of the grace of God in Christ and only because of the grace of Christ. These Thessalonians were not do-it-yourself moral and spiritual giants and you don't have to be either. But because they were in a new relationship with the living God and true God by the forgiveness of sins and the incorporation into his people, the real goodness in their lives, imperfect as it may be, pleases God their Father. Same with us. You don't have to be perfect to please God. Aiming to live and please him whom you trust in will please him which you can do and should seek to do more and more. Perhaps an analogy you may do. If you're a parent, um, you may know what I mean. I mean, parents are genuinely pleased with the actions of their young children, even if, frankly, on an objective scale, it's not that much. Like, he can talk, wowee. He can walk, well, it's hardly Olympic Games stuff, is it? But, you know, wow, look at that, very pleased. And if you're a grandparent, well, you know, of course, you're more easily pleased. In fact, you wonder what the parents were complaining about, about these wonderful grandchildren. Perfect. The point is there, as with us, you are able to genuinely please God, not because of your perfection, but because of your heart and his grace. It's worth trying because it can be done. Impotent perfectionism, or perhaps Protestant impotent perfectionism, how's that for my alliterations? Protestant impotent perfectionism is a furphy. It is the relationship with God in Christ which makes pleasing God possible. Now, don't just take my word for it. This is also the doctrine of our church. At the quote section of your order of service, you'll see uh, one of the 39 articles of religion which are part of the foundation of the doctrine of our church, the Anglican Church of Australia. And here's what it says. It's in uh, archaic language to us, but I think what it says is nonetheless clear. A, be it that good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet, here's the key phrase, they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ. They are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith inasmuch as by them a lively faith may be evidently known as a tree discerned by its fruit. What is that tree? Ah, that's what it is. They do not earn you forgiveness. They are not free from the principle of, of imperfection and God's judgment, and yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ. Faith expressed in action is what pleases God. Even an imperfect faith in an imperfect action 
It can please God. You can do it. That's the key project of living to please God. And that's my challenge to you this morning, both here and on the live stream, to consciously make that a goal. And, and, and remind yourself, I've been trying to practice this, not very successfully, myself, but remind yourself, check yourself, why am I doing this? Why? And just, just, and constantly bring to mind that, sure, the other things going on, you wish to please God by this action. It will actually change a lot more than you realize in yourself. Make life easier in some strange way, actually. And paradoxically. That's the main first point of tonight, this morning, rather. This leads me now to my second, and you may be relieved to hear slightly briefer section, some surprising examples of putting this principle into practice. See, living to please God was not left vague by Paul. He, he gave them particular ways they should do it. And 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 2 says this, For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And he then covers three areas of instruction in walking to please God. Each in their own way is a little surprising. The top of Paul's list is the call to live lives of sexual holiness. I'll not be dealing with this this morning. Justin will treat it fully next Sunday. I can say one thing in passing. That, that this should be an era of moral seriousness by which we aim to please God would not surprise us. In fact, even the non-believers in our culture still regard sexual ethics as a matter of deep moral seriousness. Whatever conclusions they draw of what you should do. But to a pagan living in Paul's time in a society in which, as one scholar has written, quote, sexual ethics were not invested with much more significance than dietary guidelines, Paul's teaching would be quite surprising, to put it mildly. More on that next week. Let me deal with the other two areas of instruction in walking to please God. The first of the other two is in verse 9 and 10. I quote, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. There's that more and more again. There's more and more of the more and more. The phrase, love one another, your love one another, is literally your love of the brothers, Philadelphia. Love of the Adelphoi, the love of the brothers. Your fellow believers, in other words your love for your fellow believers. And it's lovely what Paul writes about this because he writes about their love for the fellow believers saying he doesn't need to write about it. <laughs> Why? Because he says you are taught by God to love the fellow believers. They're taught by God. You might say, how? Paul doesn't spell it out, but we can imagine easily. I mean, when you are flooded by the love of God through the Holy Spirit and called into his kingdom and glory, how can you not also be filled with love for the others in the same situation? The others, they become your brothers and your sisters once you know God the Father. You don't, they're, they're not add-on, it's part of the deal. 
that you brought to him in a community. And in many words, you love. You don't have to be told, you must now remember, you're a Christian, to love the brothers and sisters. No, you know that. You just, your heart is filled with love for them. God, through the Holy Spirit, has taught you. Although Paul, you see, doesn't leave it at that. He adds, and yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And that's typical of Paul, and it's typical of the New Testament. Elsewhere, the other New Testament writers, and St. Paul in other places, explicitly labours the point about loving fellow believers. For although you may be taught of God, there are all kinds of situations and pressures where envy, disputes, pride, anger, enter into the Christian communities. And so the New Testament has to stress and remind believers of this fundamental obligation, a fundamental obligation to love the brothers and sisters. And you'll also notice here, by the way, that this is love of fellow believers, not just for the Thessalonians. Paul writes in verse 10, in fact, you do love all God's family, that is all the brothers, literally, throughout Macedonia. And Macedonia is a big province of where Thessalonica is the capital. That would include at least the believers in Philippi to the east and Berea also there and others as well. Many of whom I imagine these, these one Thessalonian people have never even met, right? Not even met them, but they love them. That's why I think love one another, which sounds a bit like just themselves, it doesn't mean it means love the brothers and sisters. It's not just love one another in your little church. And that has implications for us here at the 1030 service at Phillips. I mean, it's easy to love the brothers and sisters you actually know. Well, sort of easy. But maybe not all, anyway. But the love of God teaches Thessalonians to love not just those in their particular experienced community. For us, that means, of course, to love these slightly strange people at 8.30, whom I think are great people, but nonetheless. And the ones down the hill, or up the hill, at 9.30, and of course, there's those four o'clockers, and then there's the late, late hours, the six o'clockers. But not just in our own fellowship of churches or communities in the parish of Church Hill. The other brothers and sisters, our own diocese, our own large fellowship under our assistant bishops and now and thank God for the election of, the, of our new chief pastor, our new archbishop. But not just the Anglicans. What about the Presbyterians across the road? I hear you say. Or even the Roman Catholics across the park. Right? Now I know it's harder for us. The Thessalonians just had a few churches in their area they knew. We live in a big, big country, a big city and a big world. And there are millions of believers. But it's a warning to us not to think of this love for one another as for one another here. But having our hearts and minds, the believers, and where we can express our fellowship and love with them. Taught by God. Do so more and more. Why do I take this explicit way of, of um, pleasing God as slightly surprising? Why do I say it's slightly surprising? For this reason. It turns out that one of the most important ways to walk to please God and not other people is to love other people. See the paradox? One of the most important ways to please God, who tests our hearts and not please other people, is to, please, is to love other people. Love particularly your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this 
is profoundly important. You can't please God without loving the fellow believers. It is as simple as that. It's a major New Testament teaching. In fact, the two, I think, the most important New Testament teachings about Christian discipleship are what Justin's going to talk about. Justin will talk about next week, and this, what I'm talking about today, loving the fellow believers. They, they are a theme through the apostolic teaching. At least the first two things they teach their believers are these things. That's the first of my slightly surprising ways of pleasing God, to love the fellow believers. I know it's easy, ironically, because God is invisible to love him more than the ones you can see. I understand that God is okay because he's not here. I'll be here everywhere, but you can't see him. But the ones you can see can be slightly difficult. I don't mean in this church, of course, but you know what I mean. Therefore, effort is required. The other area, my last one, the third one in Paul's three series, my, my second is, um, is slightly surprising in a different way. Let me read it to you. Verse 11. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may be in the respect of outsiders and you not be dependent on anybody. To me, this is slightly surprising in that way of pleasing God, walking to please God, is that living a quiet life, literally in the Greek, being quiet, doesn't seem to be much of a God-honouring ambition. Is that it? Be quiet. And yet, that's what Paul says. In fact, the word, make it your ambition, could be translated, strive eagerly, seek restlessly. Paul's saying, seek restlessly to be quiet. That's how you please God, says Paul. How does that please God? I think what Paul has in mind here is that new believers, and especially when you've suddenly been grabbed by the grace of God and your life turned around, don't let that be an excuse to be a troublemaker or a busybody. Instead, live decent lives which are not troubling others. You see, he tells them to look after their own business, uh, work with their own hands, which is a which Paul himself did, in fact. That is, live ways which are respectable and, and, and not dependent on others and which the outsiders will recognise as worthy lives. To put it blindly, to put it bluntly, he tells them, just because you're a Christian, don't be a jerk and don't be a bludger. Um, you wonder why this is an important point for Paul? Well, don't remember that in those days, to be a Christian was hard to do secretly because you stopped attending all the family occasions for the gods. You became immediately a social pariah, unless you were a Jew, in which case you wouldn't be noticed, but outsiders. So therefore, people observe you, and therefore you're on view. And secondly, there does seem to have been a danger problem amongst the Thessalonians in this direction. I say that because in 2 Thessalonians, Paul has to come back to this issue quite severely about some people who are frankly bludging off others in the name of being Christian. And Paul has quite struck, you see it in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. Take, res, res, take responsibility for yourselves, live decent, orderly, quiet life, don't be troublemakers, this will please God, Paul is saying. Now, our situation is a little different, although increasingly I think Christians are regarded 
somewhat uneasily by those who know that you're Christian. There's a sort of ambivalence I detect in our culture. And the application here is, don't be a jerk. Get on with your life, take responsibility for yourselves in your neighbourhood, your work, in your building, wherever you are. Be a good neighbour. Be a respectful member of the community. Pull your weight. As ordinary as it sounds, this is also walking with the aim to please God. You mustn't underestimate the value and importance of this somewhat surprising second application. Well, there we are. The main purpose of the Christian life is to walk to please God. To love the other believers, to live respectful, decent lives. Just two of the instructions which Paul gave the early believers in Thessaloniki through the Lord Jesus Christ as they sought to grow in living to please God. And quite frankly, so should we.